Welcome to Bethel Brandon Sunday Message. Please head over to our website, BethelBrandon.ca, to figure out how we can best serve. So now this is my first sermon of 2024. Last week I was with my family and my kids and I had a, a great time. But there's something about a new year that kind of is almost like you're pressing a reset button sometimes. You ever have that kind of, okay, 2024, and, and we may make all these promises and things, and this is what I'm going to change, and all these things which take place. And, and many times they don't follow through or whatever, but, but that's okay. There's an optimism is what I'm basically saying. And I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic about what, is, what God is going to be doing through Bethel. I think that we have an aspiration to be the best Christian that we can be to our community. Isn't that true? Like if, if Bethel was an individual, as a Christian individual, what kind of Christian would we be? What kind of Christian would we be perceived as? Like do we passionately love Jesus? Not only that, do we love our community like Jesus did? Are we generous? Are we kind? And are we loving to those around us in, in, in a corporate way? Does it bother us when we see hurting people? When we see lost people? Now, when I was on holidays, I saw a former pastor uh, who pastored here uh, a number of years ago. John Council, perhaps some of you remember him. If you get to know John Council, you just don't forget the guy for some reason. He's just kind of unique, isn't he? So he's telling me about the work, the inner city's work that he's doing in Ottawa. And he says, you know what the slogan for our church is? Is this, the church has left the building. I thought that's kind of a neat slogan, isn't it? Because in order for a church to be effective, it needs to leave the building to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. And as we kind of have talked about Bethel, the, the be the, the be the light, to be the link, to be the love, to be the life, that's the challenge, isn't it? I don't usually make um, New Year's resolutions. But I believe God has kind of put something on my heart this year. And it is this, to love my next door neighbor. That's the challenge I have for myself. Because oftentimes we say, well, we're supposed to love our neighbor. And then what we do is we get in our cars and we drive by our next door neighbors, oblivious to what's going on in their life, to do whatever ministry that we're trying to do. I believe that if Jesus were to say, answer the question that he did in the Bible, where it says, who is my neighbor? I think that Jesus might just say this, hey, a person lives right next door to you. I think that that's a challenge for us as we go into to this year to make love practical, to somehow make uh, ourselves Jesus to the person who is right next to us. So anyways, there's my blog or my little rant or whatever is going on for, for the New Year's. So like, we're continuing, if you haven't joined us and if you're online listening, we are kind of in the middle. We're kind of in the beginning middle of a series on the book of John. We're kind of coming upon chapter 6, and I'm hoping that you have been enjoying it. The more I learn and read and study the book of John, the more I appreciate John's heart, the, the apostle John, the one of the 12 that was with Jesus. Now, the unique thing about John was that he was the only apostle that was not murdered or uh, martyred for his faith, although he was thrown in boiling oil, and somehow he uh, survived that, and he was banished to an island called Patmos. And when you stop and consider that he is the author of John, but he really isn't the author of John. The Holy Spirit is the author of the Word of God. Like if you read 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, it talks about that the prophets and, and, and those who, who, uh, who wrote scriptures wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so what happens is God uses the personalities of those people who are writing. So they are writing it, but they are inspired 
by the Holy Spirit as they, they write it out. And so the unique thing about this particular passage that we're going to be learning about in John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15, is a story which is hugely popular. And the thing about it is that this is the only story in Scripture that is, is repeated, the only miracle that is repeated by all of the apostles or the, the authors that wrote the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them. Think about that for a second. Like Jesus did a lot of miracles, didn't he? And it says as well that there were many that were not even recorded. Some fantastic miracles. What is it that makes this one so impactful and so special that all of them, as they're writing out the story of Jesus and his ministry, had to incorporate this one? What was it? And, and not only that, as you read the story, you, you find out that after this miracle happened, the people wanted to force Jesus to become king. What an impactful story. It's crazy if you stop and consider it. And it centers around, of all things, food. And that's good because I enjoy food. Anyone else here join me in that? How many here, just by show of hands, enjoy food? If you don't enjoy food, stop eating for about three weeks. I will find that eventually you will kind of have a hankering for this thing which is called food. I remember when I was on holidays and we went to Disney World, and, and Disney World is kind of scattered throughout Orlando, four or five different places, parks. One is called the Epcot Center. And if you enter into the International Gateway, there are a whole bunch of different foods. I believe that there are 64 different food choices that you can go in the Epcot Center. In other words, you can go to Epcot for a couple of months and not go into the same restaurant. And some of the best food that you can eat. It's just incredible when you stop and consider the whole thought. Like, there's something about food that brings us together, doesn't it? Gathering around at Christmas, many people gathered around, and, and that we had an opportunity as we were in Ottawa, all of our kids were together. We many times sat around the table to eat food. It's kind of nice. It always puzzles to me, puzzling to me, that when we come to visit our children, their, their pantries are empty. They don't have any food. Like they're leaving us a hint, like they're, we're the ones who are supposed to supply the food. I'm not too sure all about that and how that all works. But many times we will eat around the table and what we will do is we will eat food that they grew up with. That when they eat, they want to eat risotto, which is an Italian dish that my wife makes. Oh, we got to have it make risotto. And it makes them go back to, to the times where things were great. There's actually two days when my wife was on holidays that she has to cook food, fill their freezer, so to speak. And, and I don't quite understand. And maybe it's our fault that, that we fall for this all the time. But there's just something about getting together with people over food. Isn't it true? There's something, something pleasant about it, something that kind of uh, puts our, our, our defenses down and allows us just to relax and enjoy. And there's something about food that exposes and talks about our culture. That we can eat Italian, or you can eat German, or you can eat Japanese, or you can eat Thai, or you can eat Korean food. All of them are different. All of them tell a story. About, um, about who we are. 
I remember as we had a number of Nigerian families coming in, going over for dinner, realizing, hey, these, these people like food a little bit hotter than what I like food. I had to realize that it was rice. Oh, it's just rice. Rice isn't hot. Rice can be hot, folks. Especially with whatever chicken spice they have on there. It's just incredible. As I see the Nigerian family smiling a little bit. We're there. There's something about that. But even more, food kind of distinguishes um, something about sustenance. You can't live without food. Something which sustains you. And I believe that this is kind of the key as we get into this passage in John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. If you are a student of the Word, if you've been reading the Word any length of time, you've heard this story a number of times. And it goes like this in John chapter um, 6, verses 1 to 15. After Jesus went over to the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs which he, was, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming around him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. And Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. And one of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what is that among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so, when, so the men sat down in number of about 5,000. And again, at that particular time, they didn't include the children and the, the women. So there probably was more like 10,000 people at that particular time. And, and Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish as, they, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled... He said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the barley, five barley loaves, which were left over uh, by those who had eaten. Then those men who had seen the sign that Jesus did said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to a mountain by himself alone. An interesting passage of scripture. I think there's some things that we miss because we're reading it like 2,000 years later. You know, it is interesting. One of the most interesting books to read if you have nothing to do is the Guinness Book of World Records. Now, because I, as a pastor, need to keep you informed of some of these these, these issues, I just thought I would let you know that there was a record set close to 20 years ago in Wild Woody's Chill and Grill Bar at Roseville, Michigan. They still, since 2005, in March 17th of 2005, St. Patrick's Day apparently, made the largest sandwich ever created, 5,440 pounds it contained 150 pounds of mustard, 1,032 pounds of corned beef, 260 pounds of cheese, 530 pounds of lettuce, 
and a couple of slices of bread that weighed 3,568 pounds. The sandwich was close to 18 inches thick and was 12 feet wide by 12 feet wide. There's a picture of it there. Isn't that incredible? Not to be outdone. A few years later, in uh, Thailand, I believe, or sorry, in, in Lebanon, a group of three organizations worked together to make the longest sandwich in the world. 2,411 foot sandwich. I don't know what kind it was. Can't ask you that or anything like that. But that's a pretty long sandwich when you stop and considered how much, how long that it was. The sandwich was about 5,077 kilograms. That's pretty heavy. So why are you saying all this? Well, then, when you consider even these size sandwiches, it probably was not enough to feed 5,000 men and gather up 12 basketfuls remaining. Stop and consider the miracle. And I think we have a hard time figuring out this miracle because we live in a community and a, a region where there is a lot of food around. That it would be very much a newsworthy item if we heard of someone in Canada starving to death. But in that particular time, in that particular region, that was not so much unheard of. So when they see something like this take place, I believe that there is a level of amazement that perhaps we don't comprehend. Perhaps this is why they wanted to make them their king. This is incredible. And this is the first, again, in the book of John, he didn't call them miracles. He called them signs. There were seven signs in the book of John, and this was the fourth one, turning Turning, uh, the, uh, treating 5,000 people with five loaves and, and two fishes. Now, let me, kind of, let me kind of set the table here for you as to what is taking place. In chapter 5, we heard about the pool of Bethesda and a miracle had taken place, and it was in Jerusalem. Now we see that he is not there. So we are aware of the fact that there is a, a number of, 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 I'm not too sure, weeks, uh, months that had happened between chapter 5 and chapter 6 because he is up in the north near Bethsaida, which is near the Sea of Galilee. Now, the one nice thing about the fact that, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote about this story, we find a few details out. We realize that the, the Sermon on the Mount had already been preached at this time. We realize that not only that, Jesus had already sent out a number of his disciples to go and teach and to, to, to proclaim the good news of all that was taking place. We realize that John the, baptized, John the Baptist has died. He has died for his faith. Herod Antipas had put an end to that because of a, the scenario. I didn't want to get into it. He kills John the Baptist, but he becomes worried because all of a sudden he sees all the things that Jesus is doing. And he says to himself, this is John, come back. And so there is worry which is taking place at this particular time. It says in verse 2 of this particular passage in John chapter 6, uh, verses 1 to 15, verse 2 says, Jesus begins to do all these miracles with people who are diseased. His popularity is beginning to soar. Not only that... There is the, uh, the Passover feast which is happening, which means that people are on a journey back to Jerusalem. And so as they are doing that, there are large groups that are traveling there. They see Jesus and they say, we want to hear him. 
We want to see the signs. And they were interested in the signs, but they weren't so interested in following. You with me so far? Here's the other thing. This is not the only time in Scripture where it records that Jesus fed people with a little bit. There's also a place, that time in Scripture, where it talks that he did the same thing in the, the Gerasenes area. So what is so significant about that, the fact that he does the same miracle twice? Well, this one is in the middle of Jewish territory. The one that he does where he feeds 4,000 people and then gets seven baskets back is in the Gerasenes. And in that area, it is all Gentile people. So one particular time he does it to reveal himself to the Jewish people, but he also does it in an instance where he does it to prove to the Gentile people that he is a God who can sustain and a God who can provide. And the fact that there was 5,000, and that kind of goes along the number five with the, with the Old Testament law and the 12 with the 12 tribes of Israel and, and seven with the completeness. There's, there's no stuff in there about the numbers, which is extremely, extremely interested. And it appears that the, this is kind of the interesting scenario. Now, there's differences between John and the rest of them. Well, what are they? Well, when you look at the Gospels or the other Gospel stories, they basically make it seem like the, um, um, the apostles or the disciples that time are very much concerned about this. Jesus, what are we going to do? Send these people away. They're going, to need, they're going to need food. Tell them to go away. But in the book of John, Jesus is the one who precipitates and in John, they are talking about two people who react. One is Philip, one is Andrew. In the other ones, it's about the disciples who react. Now, it's only John that tells us about the fact that the five loaves and two fishes were given by a little boy. And it's only John that talks about the fact that the loaves were barley. And that becomes interesting because barley is a poor man's bread. And so Jesus, or John, as he begins to explain the ministry of Jesus, has something interesting to say. And here's the thing. Chances are you're not going to be home and 10,000 people are going to knock on your door. And as they come into your home, they're going to say, man, am I ever famished? You got something to eat. That doesn't happen really today. I don't think we would see that. I don't know if you will personally have a situation like that. But I can guarantee you that you have been through or will go through times where you are overwhelmed by a situation and you won't know what to do. That you will be in a situation which is beyond your capacity, beyond your ability, beyond your means, beyond your problem-solving capabilities. What do I do? What do we do when confronted with a challenge that surpasses us? And maybe you face that today. Oh, you're not feeding 5,000 people. But you're in a situation where you need God. As far as you think, you don't know what to do. As far as what the doctors say, they don't know what to do. As far as your boss says, they don't know what to do. And it may not be a food issue. Maybe it's a physical issue. Maybe it's a financial issue. Maybe it's an emotionally charged issue. Maybe it's a relational issue. Maybe it's a situational issue, which maybe you created or maybe not even you created, but you find yourself in that situation. And in this situation, you really begin to realize 
who God is or how you feel about God. And in the process of this situation, you begin to ask and begin to realize, what is it that God can actually do through me? Let me just tell you, folks, there are going to be trials that are beyond you. James, when he starts his book, says, hey, you're going to have trials. In Thessalonians, when, when Paul is talking to people, it says the trial that God will test your heart. Take a look at Peter as he starts his, his, his first letter to the people. He says that the trying of your faith, which is worth, which worth more than silver and gold, which is upon you, you are going to face difficult times, and maybe you are facing that now. Here's the thing. If you never face an impossible situation, you will never grow, you will never know, and you will never show. You'll never grow in your faith, you will never know God intimately, and you will never be able to show other people how great God is as he works through you. So if you have a couple minutes, can I show you three indispensable truths about this particular passage? I don't know if it's for everyone here. Some of us, we've heard, this, we've heard so many sermons on this that you don't even know if I can say anything more to you about it. But I believe that there's three truths that talk to us. The first one, the first one is this, the composition of crisis, the anatomy of a crisis. Now, as, as we go through this particular story of, of the feeding of the 5,000, there's some interesting things. Because Jesus picks out two of the disciples, there are different ways that they look at, three different types of perspectives. Now, Philip's assessment is based on appraisal and calculation. He takes a look at the numbers, and when they don't add up, he begins to panic. You ever have that happen? It doesn't add up. He has what we will call a statistical inventory. 200 denarii will not buy bread for these people and give them enough. A denarii is a day's pay. So if you take a look at your, your annual income and you kind of cut it by half, this is kind of what he's saying. All that money won't be able to buy it. And so what happens is he gains this worldly perspective. He didn't see it with God in the equation. And that's the thing. As believers, as followers in Christ, we always need to see things with God in the equation. And if we don't, we panic. We realize there's nothing that we can do. That's why Proverbs 3 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Next one's Andrew, Peter's brother. Now he thinks a little bit different. He's like a solution searcher. He has not a statistical inventory. He has what we will call a sensible inventory. He doesn't think with his head. He doesn't deliberate with his head. He deliberates with his hands and his feet. Here's a boy. Here's a boy. This boy has five loaves and two fishes. But what is that among so many? See, it falls short as well. He couldn't, he couldn't rely just on his own ingenuity. And sometimes we, we, we try and figure things out as we add them up. Or sometimes we think we can figure out a solution and there are some times when there isn't one, which leads Jesus. And Jesus had what we will call a supernatural inventory. He provides a third dimension, a faith dimension. 
And that's why I think the Bible says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Why is that? Because faith is the dimension that requires you to believe in God, to believe that he exists, to the point where it extends a confidence and a trust in God in the midst of your impossible situation. And the story seems to indicate with, that when faith is operational, not only it provides enough, it provides more than enough. Because the scripture says there were 12 baskets that were left over. Which kind of leads us to the second indispensable truth. We have the composition of crisis. Then we have the character of God. We learn something about God. And God is trying to reveal something about himself. And he's not just trying to reveal his capability. He is trying to reveal his character. To learn about God. And the first thing we learn is the fact that he is a good God. He is a great God. When we read uh, Matthew's rendition, it says when he saw the crowd, he had compassion on them. And when Mark tells this story, he says he had compassion on them and he saw them like a sheep without a shepherd. He took a look at them and he said, something has to be done. He had compassion on them. Sometimes we don't recognize this compassion. You know why? Because we go through a difficult time. And we say this in our head, well, it's just me. And there are six billion other people in this world. And how is it even possible that God would even consider me when there are billions of other people on the earth? But the thing is that God is God. He isn't like us. He knows everybody intimately. And when you take a look at Psalm chapter 23, the most famous psalm, And Jesus is talking about God, the Lord is my shepherd. Right near the end, he says this, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And if we look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness. Isn't that interesting? It says in, in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, Hold fast to what is good. Even, even Romans chapter 8, verse 28, the one we quote all the time, for we know that all things work to good. You see the pattern which is there, that the God that we serve is a good God. And the motivation behind what he did is because he had compassion and that he's a good God. Do you believe that? Not only that, that he's generous in abundance. The fact that there's 12 baskets left over talks about the fact that God is an extravagant giver. He is a generous God. He is so generous that when I am generous, I exemplify Jesus. Most famous passage in the New Testament, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave. Something about generosity that makes us more like Jesus. John Bunyan, the guy, the, the famous author of Pilgrim Progress, says this, you've not lived today until you have done something for someone who can never repay you. Not only that, he is a God of grace and provision. Now, in this particular chapter, there are 71 verses in John chapter 6. And as you read along, and as we will discover over the next couple of weeks as we go through this chapter that a majority of people who had eaten this meal decided not to follow him. And Jesus knew that. Jesus knew that these people would not, would eventually walk away. But even despite that, he, 
he goes and he gracefully gives. Not only that, when we read about the fact that he also fed 4,000 people in Gentile territory, these people wanted nothing to do with God. And yet still in his grace and his love and his kindness, he gives them out. Isn't that interesting? We think if I'm good, if I do the right things, God is going to be good to me. That's the deal. Not necessarily so. That God is good to people who are not necessarily good themselves because he's a graceful God. You might be here and uh, you're just kind of visiting or, or maybe you come because your spouse comes and you just don't want to you know, tip the apple cart or, or tip the boat or whatever. Or maybe you're watching online and you're saying, I will never serve God. I want nothing to do with God. I'm just for some reason watching this. You know what the thing is? That you can have that attitude and God will still be graceful to you. God will still feed out to you. He's a graceful God who provides in every situation, no matter who you are, the character of God. The last lesson is this. The composition of Christ is the character of God. The contribution of a smile child is the third one. This is why, this is why Jesus kind of frames the passage this way. That's why he says that it's a child. That's why it says that it's a barley loaf. You know what I think is interesting? Is that when John says, here's someone who has five loaves and two fishes, how did he know? Because it was a contribution to that child. It wasn't confiscated. It was a contribution. Here's the question many times we'll ask ourselves in this particular passage. Did Jesus actually need five loaves and two fish to do this miracle? I think my answer would be um, yes and no. I believe that there's a, a principle of faith here. I see it repeatedly through Scripture, that God can do the miracle without us. But what he usually calls us to do is to hand over the five loaves and the two fishes. He asks us to make the contribution it kind of initiates a faith power process. There's this kind of multiplication principle with God. And what it does is it requires me to step out, to take a chance. It requires me to give up, to sacrifice. It requires me, and I put it this way, it requires me to trade up. You ever had that? That we have this thing. And God says, I have so much more to give you, but in order for me to give it to you, you need to give up what is in your hands right now. And so what happens is we trade up and we trade up and we get to a point where we kind of like what we have and we can kind of live with what we have. And God says, I have so much for you. And we say, I don't know. I like what I have. And there's a process of faith where God is continually calling us to trade up so that he continues to do the miracle. Because many times there is no miracle if there's no initiation of faith because he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And there's a risk that you are willing to contribute. Are you willing to give your five loaves and two fishes? Whenever I read this story, I ask myself, if I'm that boy, if I'm that person, I interject myself in the story, would I be willing there with all of that to be able to give up my lunch for everyone else? 
I'm the only one smart enough to bring a meal. There's some people who think this. Other people had a meal. They weren't willing to give it up. Well, if that's the case, then they wanted to make someone like Jesus um, king over something which wouldn't be a miracle at all. They saw the fact that it was a miracle and that it happened and it took place. What would I do? It seems in terms of, of talent as well, isn't it? You know, you remember that story in the Bible where Jesus talks about the fact there's, there's a king and, and the king gives some person 5,000. He gives the other one, was it two or 3,000 talents? And, and the last one he gives 1,000 talents to. And the last one, the one with 1,000 talents, he buries it. And as a result, he becomes cast away because he just buried the talent. Now, I always wondered, why does he, he frame the reference of that story around the person with a thousand talents? I think it's because we can relate to the person with a thousand talents. If you take a look at yourself and you say, am I a 5,000 talent person? Am I a 3,000 talent person? Am I a 1,000 talent person? Majority of us would say, I'm the 1,000 talent person. And the issue is, it had nothing to do with the talents. It had to deal with the contribution. God can do just as much with 1,000 talents than he can with 5,000 talents. Isn't it true? The question to ask is, what am I willing to contribute? Ever read the story in the Old Testament of the widow that didn't have any kind of food whatsoever? And I believe it was Elijah um, who said, Elijah or Elisha, I can't remember now. I shouldn't be doing these things. I shouldn't be going off script. But... This woman says, you got, any, you got some, something for me to eat? She says, listen, I only got enough oil for my son and I to eat, and then we're going to die. That's what the Scripture says. And so you would think that the prophet would say, listen, God will take care of you. But he doesn't. He says this, go make something for me, and then God will provide. Do you find that strange? Have you ever realized that? There was something, a process where she had to contribute what she had, and God was able to do the miracle. We see it throughout the Scripture. We see it throughout the world. We see it in this church. Now, the one advantage that I have as pastor was that 30 years ago, I was here as the assistant pastor. Isn't that crazy? 30 years ago, right? Some of you who are in your mid-40s, I was your youth pastor. That's crazy. Anyways, sorry. <laughs> At that time, this building wasn't as old, obviously. But I remember hearing the stories of people who sacrificed so that this building could be in existence. The truth I have to tell you about this church is this, that this church exists because of the contributions of dozens of people's five loaves and two fish. And think of all the things that have happened in this assembly. Think of all the people who have gotten saved. Think of all the people who have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. All the things that God has done. It started with people saying, I'm willing to give my five loaves, two fishes, for God to, be, for God to have his way. Incredible. I know I've told you this story. Um, and because you haven't been to every service I have, some of you probably haven't. I remember when I was a young Christian, a new Christian, and God would call me to go to Bible college. And so what I did was I had determined to go to Bible college. And so in the midst of that, I worked for my father-in-law who owned a tree nursery at that time. And I worked enslaved, you know, lots of months. And I realized as the summer was closing that I was not going to have enough money to go 
um, to Bible college. I had been accepted, but I had to raise the money. And my parents, they weren't Christians. They were wondering what I was going to Bible college for. This is kind of crazy. And so, and so I remember going into my basement and praying and saying, God, I have so much money. This is the money that I've raised, and I did everything I could to be faithful and, and saving it. And, and you need to provide. And I remember distinctly, and this hasn't happened a lot in my life, I remember getting the impression on my heart, then you need to give the money that you have. And I said, God, you misunderstand the prayer. <laughs> I'm asking you to give me. And at that time, I was young in my faith. I hadn't been tithing regularly. I hadn't been giving regularly. I hadn't figured all this. I hadn't been challenged by anyone. But this particular time, it took me three days to deliberate over it because it was a lot. It was, I worked all summer for this. And I remember on the Monday morning saying, okay, God, I will give it. I will give it. I got the check ready. And then two days later, it had rained, so I had to come home. And I got a call that afternoon when I was supposed to be working by one of the biggest businesses in the community that was willing to hire me on as a student for four times as much as what I was making at that time. And in the first week, because it was my first week, they, they allowed me to work 70 hours. It was just 30 hours of overtime. And, and within like two weeks, I gained back all the money that I'd given out. And not only that, I made enough for school for not only the first year, but the next four years after that. And I learned the lesson of trading up. That God calls us to give the five loaves and the two fish so that somehow he can do something great with that. That's the wonderful thing about God. So in this story, there are three indispensable truths. My question to you today is this. Which is the one that God is speaking to you about today? Like, like this isn't the, the isolated story. This is seen throughout Scripture. This is maybe the most celebrated. But we see it all the time in the Bible. Will you allow God to change your perspective? Will you allow God to show you his generosity, his grace, his goodness? Will you be willing to say, God, here is my five loaves and my two fish? In other words, God, I'm willing to surrender it all for your kingdom. And here's the thing. It is when you actually surrender it all that Christianity actually makes sense. If you're only giving half, if you're only giving a portion, this faith will not make sense to you. It only makes sense when you give him everything. Amen? So God, I just pray that you will move in, in whoever this message is for. That there are people I know who are suffering. There are people who are in situations that without you, Father, they have nothing. And I pray, God, that you will move and that you will minister and that you will encourage and that you will revive those people. For those of us who have forgotten 
that you are a good and a graceful God. And somehow the fact that we have been distracted from the goodness and the grace of God has limited us, that has held us back, God. I pray that there will be a healing on those, that you will change our perspective, that you are a good God, that you are a graceful God. Even in the midst of the trouble, you are good, you are graceful, you are generous. God, I pray that you move. And for those of us who have held back our five loaves and two fish, I pray that you will prove to them what happens when we give it all to you. The great things that you can do with a small little boy, you can do through us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you enjoyed it, please head over to BethelBrandon.ca to listen to our older messages or maybe connect with us and figure out how we can best serve you. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.